morning, church. Uh, I'm Neil Jones, and my wife and I, Angela, sorry, my wife and Ed, sorry, <laughs> my wife Angela and I have been attending uh, TCC for the past 14 years, and I just found out this morning why I have such a connection with Pastor Steve, because we both share the same heritage, both our families come from Northern Ireland. Uh, so I'm going to have the privilege of reading God's word for you this morning. If you'd kindly uh, stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. It's reading from the New International Version, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is a builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house if we indeed hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the very end. And just as has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those whom Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Neil. Have you ever wondered what it takes to be great? Or have you ever known someone who was great? You know, as a young boy, I remember laying under the covers at night, listening to the Oilers broadcast on a little transistor radio under the covers because I was supposed to be in bed. When I was 12 years old, something amazing happened. Wayne Gretzky joined the team. And through all my teen years and into my early 20s, I was able to follow along and watch his achievements. Anybody who has known or followed the Edmonton Oilers or, the, or hockey in general would know the name Wayne, Wayne Gretzky, who went on to lead the Oilers to four Stanley Cups <clears throat> before ultimately being traded. I know exactly where I was and what I was doing on that day. Anyone else? Oh, a few of you, yeah. Um, it was traumatic. And it was uh, it just, I mean, just imagine right now you got, a, you know, your phone started blowing up with the news that Connor McDavid was traded or something like that. It was just, it was shocking. But he had played 20 seasons even after getting traded. Um, <clears throat> and by the time he retired in 1991, or sorry, 1999, he was holding 61 records uh, in the NHL. And many of them he still obviously holds. 
So along the way, obviously, he was nicknamed the Great Gretzky, or even simply the Great One. Now, of course, we have the uh, current privilege or pleasure of watching McDavid. And if you've been following along with the Oilers, you'll know that now often his achievements are being compared to Gretzky's. And, you know, the time of how many games it's taken to get to certain milestones along the way. But when we think of someone like that who is great... How do we actually respond to them? What is kind of our heart's posture towards them? Well, for starters, I want to suggest that we look for ways to honor them. And certainly Gretzky was honored over and over through accolades and awards and all of those kind of things. And even to this day, when he appears in public somewhere, it's it's almost like he's treated like royalty, Well, a month ago, we started a new series of messages from the book of Hebrews that we have titled Greater Than. And it's a clear reference to the central message of this book, that Jesus is greater than. And because of this, we're then actually called to commit our lives to following him unreservedly, passionately, even radically. And when we do that, we are, in fact, bringing honor to him. So today... We will consider the original great one, that is Moses, and how Jesus, in fact, is greater than Moses. And then this passage gives us three commands or directives as to how we might then honor Jesus. But first, I want to just make a couple of uh, kind of introductory comments. You see, one just a general comment is that um, it is, as a pastor and as, a, as one who, who gets to study the Word, it's such a blessing and, and, a, and privilege, but also a challenge to study passages like this in depth. Um, I've never preached through Hebrews. I've actually never sat under the teaching of the book of Hebrews. Um, and I'm beginning to discover why. It can just be really kind of hard and complicated, and it's like, what is he going on about? But I mean, the writer of Hebrews, the preacher who wrote this message, is just absolutely incredible. And it seems that every word or every phrase, the significant use of the Old Testament throughout, it's just rich with meaning. And Pastor Adam last week on a few occasions commented on how deeply theological the book is and how he was at times feeling like he was teaching a theology course. But what has been a real encouragement to us, just as we've gotten started in this series, is how many of you have responded with, thanks, you know, this is great, because your heart is to sink your teeth into some of the more difficult uh, books and passages in the Bible. But the challenge then for me, and for anyone preaching from these texts, is then to distill some of these complex ideas and theological truths, and try to help make them a little bit understandable, and then to do that in the kind of 30, 35, or maybe 40 minutes that we have. Now, many of the commentaries I studied this week break this chapter into two sections. And when we put this series together, for some reason, we thought it was wise to just take all of chapter 3 at once. Not really sure how that happened. Well, I have an idea, but you don't care about that. So I invite you to take your Bibles, and I hope you have one. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some hard copies available um, at uh, kind of the ushers' stations by each of the doors, and you can help yourself to one. And if you don't have a Bible, um, please um, take one of those with you today. We're going to be in chapter 3 in the verses that Neil read for us today. By way of kind of another introductory comment, I want to just offer a word of encouragement. See, when we look at verse 1, it begins, therefore. And, you know, it seems like such a cliche or trite thing, but I always say that whenever you see the word, therefore, you need to ask what it is, why is it, what is it there for? And this ties us back to all of what came before. And so we have to think about chapters 1 and 2 and how really um, the writer is continuing his argument And that how all of chapters 1 and 2 were about how Jesus is greater than the angels. But then in verse 9, the preacher says something unexpected. That Jesus became, for a little while at least, a little lower than the angels. And how was that? Well, because he became one of us. 
And last week, Pastor Adam unpacked what all of those last few verses in chapter verses 10 through 18 meant, and he captured it really with three words. He said family, and that Jesus made a way uh, ultimately for us to become holy and to become part of his family. And in these verses in chapter 3, the writer's really, he's just doubling down on that and making that emphasis. So all of those references to his house in those early parts of the verse that Neil, uh, passage that Neil read, were really all about his family and being part of this family. talk a little bit more about that but last week Adam also talked about freedom how Jesus made a way for us to be free from death and we talked about um, as we sung this morning we had many references to this freedom that we have in Christ and that we should just celebrate that and live into the reality of that and then thirdly there is the idea of redemption that Jesus made a way for us to be restored to God And so now, by starting chapter 3 with the word, therefore, the writer is about to unpack what all of this means, and specifically, what that means for, he refers to, holy brothers and sisters. I like that, that, that phrase there, the holy brothers and sisters. You see, what Jesus has ultimately accomplished by becoming one of us, and then living and dying, and being raised to new life, and being raised um, to, to life, eternal life, that becoming one of us, he made it possible for those then who believe in Jesus Christ to those to then know him personally and ultimately to make them holy. And so he then makes us part of his family and we're given this family trait because God is holy, God's people are holy, they're forgiven, they're set apart, and he calls them brothers and sisters. And so again, this is just a reminder of what he was saying back in chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, both the one who makes people holy, that is Jesus, and those who are made holy, that is those who believe in Jesus, are of the same family. So Jesus, he says, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now, is that not an incredible, wonderful truth? That when we are in Christ, not only are we forgiven and freed from slavery to sin and the fear of death, we're restored to a right relationship with God, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, but we're made holy. And we have this whole new significance and we have purpose and meaning in life. Now, as I often say, you know, we are saved as individuals but we're then called to live out our faith in the community of faith. That we're called out of the darkness is a reference throughout Scripture and into his marvelous light, but we're called out and we're called together. So those of us who are in Christ are then part of this wonderful family, this family of God. And ultimately, this is what it means to be a Christian, to be part of a family. So there are no lone rangers. This is not a do-it-yourself project that you need to be in relationship then with God's family. And as a member of God's family, we each have a responsibility then to contribute to the health and mission of the family and to live a life that is then consistent with this new status. Peter, in writing about this very same thing, he says this in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 11. It says, but you are a chosen people, okay? And right away, I think of this phrase that we say, I am chosen, not forsaken. Like, just let that, that little phrase in the song that we saying, I am chosen, not forsaken. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, there it is again, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's this past tense and current reality. And then he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles in this world, we're foreigners and exiles. In that sense, we we don't actually belong to this worldly kingdom anymore. We're part of a new kingdom, a new reality. He says, as foreigners and exiles, I urge you, abstain from sinful desires which wage war 
against your soul. I don't even need to say much more about that. I think we, we understand the reality in which we then live that out. And Peter's really going on to about two truths here, is that on one hand we're made holy and we're brought into the family of God, but then we're actually urged to live that out as we surrender to the lordship of Jesus and live under the authority of Scripture. And so we say no to sin and yes to the pursuit of holiness and righteousness, and we do that together. So it's no wonder then that chapter 3 opens with, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, we're holy brothers and sisters. And then he adds one more significant phrase, who share in the heavenly calling. Share in the heavenly calling. Oh, there's great meaning and beauty in this little phrase. <clears throat> because what he's saying is this is ultimately then, as followers of Jesus, what we have in common. That we share this calling from heaven to heaven. And it's on the basis of this calling that we then ultimately have unity. You see, our, our unity is, is not that we have some of the same preferences. In fact, we have very different per, uh, preferences. It's not that we have the same personalities. We have very different personalities. Or that we have some of the same things. Or that we share maybe the same social background or economic background or racial background or age or any other thing that we might think unites us. But the thing that actually sets the church apart is the diversity of the church. As Scott McKnight calls the church, a fellowship of difference. Have you ever noticed how different people are around you? I mean, where else do you have unlikes and differences sharing life together? Young and old, rich and poor, black and white. We have people who vote conservative and liberal and NDP, and maybe even a few Green Party supporters. I don't know. But we don't even all cheer for the Oilers. Some don't even follow hockey. <laughs> but when you think of the church and this fellowship of difference, it's beautiful. It's attractive. There's nowhere else in the world that you'll go where you'll see this many people of this diverse background united around the same purpose, the same mission. And so what we do have in common, he says, is this heavenly calling. And we pursue the same mission. Together, we know Jesus. We walk with Jesus. We share Jesus. Together, we pray to that end. So there really are here these three descriptions in this opening part of verse 1 of those who are ultimately reading this. They're holy, they're brothers and sisters, and they share in this heavenly calling. Now, I've taken some time on this because I think it's really important and now I'm only halfway through verse 1. But let me just say this. The, the Heritage Fest that we were introduced to you about that is, is really an opportunity for us to celebrate that diversity and how in that diversity there is this unity, unity of purpose, unity of mission. And so we'll say more about that in the coming weeks. But let us know, the, 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 you know the, your country of origin, whether you were born there or your families or your ancestry goes back there. If you can say, you know, I, you know, I have German roots, which I do. You, can't, you might not be able to say that. But whatever it is, let us know. And we want to connect you then with other people that maybe you haven't known. And, uh, and then we're going to celebrate this together on April 13th. And so it's important just to know this, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ... Um, this should encourage us today because you are not alone in your journey of faith. You belong and you need to find a place where you can belong and connect deeply. That we don't just get together for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning, you know, just, just to hang out and sing some songs together. No, we're part of this fellowship of difference who have been declared holy, who are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And together, we're pursuing lives of holiness. Now, let me just say a quick word about Moses, who I've referred to this morning as the original great one. You see, in order for us to understand 
the argument that the writer is making here, we need to understand a little bit about why in Jewish history, Moses was considered the greatest of all Hebrews. In fact, he would be revered as the greatest man in history by his people. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, there's no doubt that Moses is like the central figure in, in, in the Old Testament. Let me just run through a couple of reasons of why he was considered so great. Well, first of all, that God had chosen him, protected him, and called him. Just go home and read the first three chapters of Exodus, and you'll be introduced to Moses and why he was so significant. Secondly, he was the incomparable deliverer of his people through an unparalleled display of power. And continue then reading on in Exodus You'll be, be confronted with, with the, 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 the desire for the Israelites to leave Egypt. And there was the plagues and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea, all led by Moses. <clears throat> and he served then, thirdly, as Israel's greatest prophet. If you think about him then receiving the Ten Commandments where he encountered God face to face. He had this incredible intimacy with God. And all who who read about Moses knew that to be true about him. Fourthly, Moses was considered the lawgiver, right? We refer to the law of Moses. And to the Jew, the law was the greatest thing. And so the one who brought it was the greatest. Fifth, he was Israel's great historian. Under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he authored the first five books of the Bible. We may not catch that because we refer to them as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but they are considered the first, uh, second, third, fourth, fifth book of Moses. And sixthly, and this seems kind of out of nowhere, was that he was humble. You think about that, is that everybody acknowledged him to be so great and in Numbers 12, verse 3, now Moses, in parentheses, was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, granted, he wrote that about himself um, <laughs> under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But think about it, this great one, and yet humble. And if you read his story, he had to learn some life lessons the hard way. But they softened him and formed him. And so you could say ultimately that Moses was the great apostle. He was sent. And the great high priest. He was an advocate for the Israelites to God. And so this is why to the Jewish Christians who were the recipients of the original readers of the book of Hebrews, Moses was everything. He simply was the greatest. And for good reason. According even to early tradition, Moses was superior to even the angels. So you're connecting the dots. You see why he's going on about making sure that we know that Jesus was greater than the angels, and now he's making a point that Jesus was greater than Moses. Because here in Hebrews 3, the writer considers it important to establish the superiority of Jesus over Moses. The Jewish Christian perhaps had accepted the writer's argument that Jesus was greater than the angels, but maybe they didn't see Jesus as greater than Moses. And this would have made living out their faith, especially in the face of persecution, very difficult. And the danger would be that they might then ultimately leave Jesus, leave Christianity, and go back to Judaism. Because, well, if Moses is greater, then what are we wasting our time for? So Moses was the original great one. But we also learn from these verses that Jesus is even greater than Moses. How is Jesus greater than Moses? Verses 2 through 5 are essentially now a description of the ways that Jesus is greater than Moses. Verse 3 just clearly states, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Now, the writer is not in any way um, discounting the significance of Moses. And he is saying that both Moses and Jesus were faithful in so many ways. But in essence, he keeps saying, but Jesus is more faithful. That makes him greater. And there's so much more that I could say here as we work through our way through there. But at the end of the day, the point is that while both Moses and Jesus were faithful, Jesus ultimately is greater than Moses. And so simply put, all of the Old Testament, 
The law of Moses, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, some of the things we read and we scratch our heads saying, what what does it mean? But they were valid in their time, but they were also pointing forward to a fulfillment in Jesus. And so what you have in the Old Testament is the promise, and then in the New Testament you have the fulfillment. And so Jesus is greater ultimately because he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And that is a strong message throughout Hebrews, that all of the Old Testament references, and this is why I think the writer goes back there, yeah, this is this text you know, this is what you guys have read, this is what you've been taught, but let me show you how that is now fulfilled in Jesus. And they help us discover more about Jesus. So I want us to think then about if Jesus is greater than Moses, how then do we honor Jesus? If he truly is the greatest of all time, how do we honor him? How do we as holy brothers and sisters who share in this heavenly calling honor Jesus? And there are three commands throughout this passage that I'll just run through um, that stood out to me. Number one, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Now, this is clearly laid out in verse 1 still, where not only does he introduce who he's writing this to, he then says to them, fix your thoughts on Jesus. I think this is a great word choice on the part of the writer, because this is more than just a casual glance at Jesus or some kind of careless consideration of the things of Jesus. This isn't something that you do for an hour on a Sunday morning. In fact, a better word, and some translations use this, they say, consider Jesus. We should absolutely focus on Jesus. And the sense of the word that he uses here clearly implies that we should look carefully to Jesus to apply our minds so that we might understand what is being taught. Because, in fact, it might become life-transforming for us when we think about it in that way. And we don't just sort of just, yeah, whatever. No, we focus on it. And so how do we consider Jesus in this way? Well, I found these helpful as I was studying these words came uh, together for me. One is desire. That when we're talking about focusing on Jesus, it actually starts with a desire. David did this because he really wanted to see the Lord. And so he wrote in Psalm 27, verse 4, he says, One thing I ask from the Lord. And I thought it was so interesting that he says, you know, I'm asking this from the Lord. This only do I seek. And we're like, okay, what, do you, what is the only thing you're seeking, David? He says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. What David was expressing in that psalm was, I want to fix my eyes on the Lord. And in our context, is I want to fix my eyes on Jesus. And we do that not only through a desire, but desire leads to concentration. Because ultimately focusing the mind on Jesus requires that we engage your mind and we concentrate. We keep him before us. As you know, there are so many distractions in life. And we can get drawn in this direction and that direction. And and, 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 and I'm sometimes... I haven't been diagnosed with this, but sometimes I think I have like ADHD, right? Because it's like, oh, there's a squirrel. And Tina's like, Norm, focus, you know? But they're just, they're, they're, there are distractions in life. And so it's important that we concentrate, that we actually engage our heart and our mind. We'll come to that in following Jesus. And this ultimately requires discipline then. So if you're writing these words down, desire, concentrate, discipline. This comes really ultimately from the arena of of athletics where we recognize that concentration then requires discipline. And a verse that we may be familiar with and we'll come to later in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, there the writer writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, again, why is the therefore? Chapter 11 was this great hall of, of faith. But we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us 
Do you know how it ends? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Okay? It requires discipline where we throw off the things that hinder us, that trip us up, the sin that entangles us. And so we pursue righteousness and holiness through discipline. And lastly, another way to focus is time. Ultimately, fixing our thoughts on Jesus requires time because just honestly thinking about Jesus doesn't just happen with kind of a quick glance, a quick thought. In the same way that you can't see, you know, the beauty of the countryside when you're just flying down the highway, right? To take in any part of God's creation, we need to sit still and take time. And the same truth applies that we would sit down and take time to be with Jesus, right? Because, friends, you know, like, in this world, you will have trouble, there, there are hardships, there's challenges, there's stuff in our world. You turn on the news and it's like, this confuses me, it upsets me, I don't understand it. And if we start to put our gaze at those things, those are the things that ultimately trip us up and they hinder us. And so the writer is saying, no, don't focus on that stuff. It's there, it's a reality. Yes, don't bury your head in the sand, but certainly don't fix your eyes on it. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And that's why we talk about spiritual practices at TCC. Because when we're living busy and hurried lives, when we don't have time and space to focus on Jesus, we absolutely need to take time, make time for that. And it has to start with desire to be with Jesus. And so we pray, as David did, God, one thing I'm asking of you, Give me this desire. Help me to fix my eyes on Jesus. And so we start with the practice of silence and solitude, how every day you take time. If you're not doing that, just start with five minutes. That could be revolutionary for you. But always look at just how do I increase this? How can I just sit and be with Jesus to fix my eyes on him? In that, find time to read scripture. Find time to pray. As we have entered now into the season of Lent, it began this last Wednesday. We're encouraging you to have an intentional focus on Jesus as we consider fasting as a practice. And there's many reasons why fasting is a good practice for us. But ultimately, when our stomachs cry out for attention, we turn and give our attention to God. And we fix our thoughts on Jesus. And so we focus on Jesus. So focus on Jesus. Secondly, how we honor Jesus is when we protect our hearts. Skip down to verse 12 and we read that we honor Jesus when we focus on him and when we protect or guard our hearts. Again, verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters. He's still referring to the family of God. He says that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Whoa, see to it. He's just saying, like, listen, guys, you need to be extremely careful. Be aware of the dangers of ultimately cultivating the wrong posture and cultivating a sinful, unbelieving heart. You need to to be on guard against that. And Solomon in Proverbs writes, chapter 4, verse 23, above all else, he says, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. You see, the heart in the Bible is seen as this moral center of our being. Our hearts are the place where the issues of life are addressed. It's kind of the control center. And so the writer is issuing here a warning that we should be very careful and concerned about the state of our hearts, that we would pay attention, not just to Jesus, but that we would pay attention to our hearts. And turning away from the living God, he says, is in fact, is a huge mistake. You see, when your life could be in danger, it's necessary to post these warning signs. If you've ever gone somewhere where, you know, you could step off a ledge or a cliff and kind of fall to your death. I remember seeing these signs. This, I can't remember exactly. I think it was maybe in El Salvador. We went to this volcano 
and, and we were way up on the ridge of it, and you could see down into the middle, and it obviously wasn't an active volcano, but it was deep, and there was a fence around it, and just on the other side was a sign, you know, that showed this flailing guy and the, and the rocks kind of going with them, because if you step over, there's a danger of going over this fence and then plummeting to your death. And so sometimes it's important to have the warning signs. And that's what the writer is doing here. He's warning us. He's saying, listen, the condition of your heart is absolutely crucial. And in verses 7 through 11, he's now quoting Psalm 95. And you can read it again uh, on your own. But Psalm 95 is ultimately about the Jewish people in the wilderness. And if you know anything about the journey of the Israelites in the wilderness, you know that it didn't go very well for them. There was this progressive hardening of their hearts. You remember how well it started out, right? They, they left Egypt in this miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, the miraculous provision of food and water in the, in the wilderness. But ultimately, they got lazy. And they lost their focus. And they started grumbling and complaining. And what do they say? We want to go back. You see, their rebellious hearts ultimately exposed the hardening of their hearts. And ultimately, an entire generation missed being able to enter into the promised land. Why? Because verse 19, at the very end, so we see that they were not able to enter into the promised land because of their unbelief people who trusted God for miraculous provision had allowed their hearts to become hard. And their hardened hearts led them to become unbelieving. Friends, this is a warning for us. Don't ever let your hearts grow cold. If we stop hearing God's voice, A hard heart is not far behind. And a hard heart will cause us to wander and to want to go back maybe. And so it just makes me wonder, are you listening to God today? Through the message, what is he saying to you? Through your own reading of scripture? A couple of times in this passage, today if you hear his voice today. Not tomorrow, but today. May we be like what the psalmist in Psalm 1 writes, blessed is the one who does not keep in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. Take or or, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. There it is again. Focus on Jesus. Guard your heart. And lastly, encourage one another. Verse 13 now, but encourage one another daily. There it is again. Today, start today. As long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now I need to kind of wrap this up, but put this in the context of what I was saying earlier, that when you are a follower of Jesus, when you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become part of this family of God. You become part of a community of faith. And you don't just stand around on the outskirts of it and you come and go. You get involved and you rub shoulders with other believers. And that may be in the form of a small group or a triad, but the point is that we help each other walk this faith out. And that although we are guarding our own hearts, we also have a responsibility to help one another watch out. The often illustration that is used is like the coals of a fire. And if you've ever gone camping and you take a, a hot coal of a burning ember and you take it out and set it aside all by itself, it doesn't take long to, what, go out, lose its heat, grow cold. 
And one of the ways that God has designed the community of faith, the church, to be together is that we would encourage one another and that we would help each other stay warm, to stay hot, as it were. Now, there are in these verses a clear warning. And we need to learn from the experience of God's people in the wilderness. They lost sight. They hardened their hearts. They complained. They wanted to go back to Egypt place of slavery and oppression that makes no sense but that's ultimately where they found themselves and so we need to learn from them is what the writer is getting on he says don't go back there don't look back but look ahead keep your focus on jesus protect your heart encourage one another daily there's going to be times where it's going to be tough but when we have people walking with us and walking with jesus we always talk about we walk with jesus in the company of others why is that important because we help one another We encourage one another. And when we start succumbing maybe to the deceitfulness of sin in our own lives, we have a friend who's a truth teller who speaks the truth in love and says, hey, watch out. Because you're playing with fire. The sin's deceit, deceitfulness of sin. Now there's so much more here and I wish I could take time to talk about, you know, verse um, 14 where he talks about We have, he says, come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. He said this earlier, something similar in verse 6. But he's basically saying, friends, persevere. Keep on. Continue on. Even when the growing gets rough and it gets hard, right? Sometimes you probably think, you know what? When I became a Christian, I thought it was going to be easy. But then you discovered actually following Jesus, living under his lordship, was like, oh, this isn't so easy. I got tough decisions to make. There are things that I now can't do or can't pursue. But now, how do I carry on? And so we continue this journey of faith over time as the title of uh, Eugene Peterson's book puts it so well, a long obedience in the same direction. I'm just going to use this quote from Charles Spurgeon who says the Christian life is like the guy who, in the midst of the storm, on the deck of the ship, is beaten and thrashed and thrown down onto the deck, but he's not thrown overboard. Is that not a good picture of the Christian life? Sometimes we get beaten by the waves, we get tossed to and fro, but we're never thrown overboard. Why? Because we are chosen, not forsaken. Friends, I have to ask you, do you know Jesus? Do you know him in this way? Is he the author and perfecter of your faith? Paul writes in Philippians that he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And so we continue on, we keep on, we keep learning, we keep growing, but we fix our eyes on Jesus. We guard our hearts and we encourage one another in this journey. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for just the truth of your word. And sometimes it kind of smacks us in the face a little bit. But it's an important word for us. I pray, Father, for those that perhaps this morning, are just trying to wrestle through what does it really mean to follow Jesus? And they're hearing the messages. They're trying to connect the dots. And I pray, Father, that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would bring them, ultimately, to exercise faith and to say yes to Jesus. Maybe it's not in a distinct moment, but it sort of happens over time and we come to realize that you love us, that you care for us. And because of that, we actually want to honor you. We want to live our lives in such a way that speaks to the reality of being made holy. And so we pursue holiness. And so I pray, Father, that 
for those of us who are in Christ today, that you would help us to this end where we might say, yes, Lord, in all that I do, I want to honor you. And so keep my eyes focused on you. Guard my heart. Help me to protect my heart, God. From those things that can distract the the deceitfulness of sin, the lure of sin. Just that battle that we're in sometimes. And we do feel like Spurgeon said, we're just tossed about on the deck of a ship. But we're not thrown overboard. Because you're holding us as we hold firmly to the end. So today, church, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Amen.